Hey, I'm Peter Medlin, and you are listening to Teacher's Lounge from WNIJ. And if this is your first time hearing our show, I'm happy to report that it's a simple idea. We've all had teachers in our lives who helped shape who we are, and we want to hear about the educators who've inspired you and the educators in your community who deserve a spotlight. Every educator we have on this podcast, whether a teacher, a coach, professor, is nominated by the folks who listen. So please do be a part of our show and tell us about the person who comes to your mind. Email us with your nominations at teacherslounge at niu.edu. This week on the show, Dolores Robinson is an English and speech instructor at Illinois Valley Community College. I think there's still a little bit of a stigma around community colleges, even now, one hopefully that we're going to light on fire and toss in the bin during this episode. I think pop culture has kind of colored our perception of what the college experience is supposed to be. You know, you can picture if you close your eyes, you know, it's it's fall and the foliage is beautiful and you're walking on the quad. People are reading books under trees between 100-year-old buildings. Or, or maybe you're picturing like some sort of Animal House-style fraternity. But either way, as Dolores and I talk about, lifelong learning happens well beyond the moment in your life when you're, you know, 18 to 20 years old, fresh out of high school. And we talk about the unique culture of Illinois Valley Community College, including all of the quote-unquote non-traditional students she teaches who are, you know, in their 30s with kids and getting a new certificate for their job or someone who worked for a few years and now wants to continue their education. So what she put on the page was always fun to read. It might not be 100% grammatically correct all the time or have the commas where I would put them, but but a really beautiful writer. She needed to hear it over and over and over again, though. I don't. I still think after she graduated and got her diploma, I still think she believed me 100% um, that her writing was as beautiful as it was. We talk about how community colleges can also be cultural centers, especially for a community like hers, where it's the closest higher ed institution within an hour or two. We get into all that as well as her own journey as an educator and what she's learned over the decades of trying to help students discover their voice as writers. That and so much more coming up here on Teacher's Lounge. Okay, before our conversation with Dolores, we have a few education stories we want to bring you. With the new school year starting, reports of a national teacher shortage are at an all-time high, really. But is staffing at schools actually way harder this year than in previous years? I decided to talk to several school districts and an education researcher to find out. Is there a teacher shortage? A superintendent at a small school district in rural Illinois might tell you about how elementary teacher positions that used to attract 100 applicants now get three. Jay Stryker is the superintendent of Samanac Public Schools, home to about 700 students. He'd also mentioned how their high school science teacher resigned before last year, and he couldn't find a replacement. We had to go an entire year by having our kids learn chemistry on a computer. So you're never doing an experiment. Everything is just sit and get from a computer, and that's you know, our kids deserve better. But is there a teacher shortage? Other education advocates say no. If you're having trouble hiring and keeping teachers, those advocates say it's because they're not paid enough to teach under pandemic stress with school board battles over issues like COVID masking seeping into the classroom. Rich Favor is the superintendent of another small rural school district, Earlville, and he says he understands the pressure his staff have been under the past few years. Why would a new teacher want to come into the profession when those of us that are in it are reporting, you know, such high levels of stress? So is there a teacher shortage? 
Paul Bruno would prefer that I and everyone else would stop using that phrase. He's an assistant professor of education policy, organization, and leadership at the University of Illinois. He just published a piece in Education Next about how it's important to clarify what we mean when we talk about teacher hiring issues. For example, staffing problems are specific. Certain positions like special education, bilingual, and science are harder to fill than English. And filling those jobs in low-income communities downstate Illinois is much different than in an affluent suburb where pay is a lot higher. It's the students who are already most disadvantaged in various ways who are often in classrooms that are the hardest to staff. Those real challenges are complicated, he says, and by talking about shortages broadly, he fears it doesn't help with finding solutions. He points out that Illinois schools are employing more teachers than a few years ago, even with fewer enrolled students. It's not just a question of how many people are we certifying to be teachers, how many people are willing to be teachers. It's also a question of are they willing to be teachers in the schools that uh, we want them to work. Jason Pope is tasked with trying to fill vacancies at Rockford Public Schools, Illinois' third largest district. The district has around 5,000 employees, and they have fewer than 100 unfilled staff positions, which he says is a typical number. Pope says they're in really good shape compared to last year with support positions like nutrition and transportation workers. When we look at teaching vacancies, we're probably right on target with where we were last year. Same with paraprofessionals. So I I would compare this year to last year with us being maybe in just slightly better shape than we were last year. He says they've been offering signing bonuses for difficult-to-fill teaching and support positions, including bus drivers. But the staff solution they've invested in the most are pipelines. That includes a partnership with Northern Illinois University to promote paraprofessionals into hard-to-hire special education jobs. In DeKalb, Dietra Salas says she saw more teachers than usual leave the profession after last year. At this point, she says they have a few vacant classroom positions and are trying to address that. There is language in our collective bargaining agreements about class size, but we have started some preliminary discussions with our DCTA teachers union about Mm. some alternative teaching models. Often when teaching positions go unfilled, classrooms get combined. In many school districts, including Samanac, that happened a lot last year when teachers were out with COVID. Substitutes were especially hard to come by then, so Superintendent Jay Stryker says they added an incentive. We called it the Bobcat loyalty rate. If you work for us five days, we increase the pay from $106 a day to 150 When it comes to licensed teaching positions, Stryker says unlike last year when they went without a high school science teacher, this year they're fully staffed. And the same is true for rural Earlville, totally staffed for this year. Federal COVID money came in the clutch for them. Thanks to that extra cash, they were able to hire five additional staff members. Superintendent Rich Favor has thought a lot about ways to keep good teachers he already has. He says they bumped up some base salaries and pay scale incentives for experienced teachers. They even started a daycare program for their teachers' families. School staffing is complex, and there are many legitimate challenges for schools trying to hire. But Paul Bruno says that's why it's important to home in on exactly where staffing issues exist and who they affect so education leaders know where to target support. Okay, now it's time for my conversation with Illinois Valley Community College English and Speech Instructor Dolores Robinson. How long have you been at Illinois Valley Community College now? I adjuncted there for a couple of years and I think I was hired on full time in 2007. I think. Oh, really? So you've been around for for quite some time then? Yeah, I've been there a while. That's fantastic. Yeah, and again, I, I I find community college to be such a fascinating and specific experience, and especially 
for a college like IVCC, which I think the closest college, right, has to be Northern Illinois University. So like within an hour, hour and a half, you guys are kind of not only the major post-secondary institution, but like one of the main cultural hubs for like arts and all sorts of other cool clubs and community activities. It's really like a, a cool spot that you guys are in. It, it is. It's, it's a wonderful location. The countryside is beautiful. I, I, you know, I was born and raised in Illinois, so I really love just the look of the, the rural area. On a farm too, no less. Yeah, yeah. But for any sort of culture or education or uh, event that celebrates learning, y- you know, these community colleges like IVCC that are out in the middle of nowhere kind of are vital. Is there an IVCC-specific cultural experience, arts, exhibit, something that you just think more people should know about that's really cool? Well, the the Performing Arts Department always does a wonderful job. They've got several events that happen throughout the year. We just recently hired uh, an art instructor. The college had gone without a full-time art instructor for a couple of years, which is was I felt the void of that uh, yeah. because prior to um, us being without, you know, there were student projects all over campus. The previous uh, art faculty person hosted a regional event for high school students, and um, you know, so so I love to see students' artwork and photographs and and paintings up in the display cases and that's going to come back again so i'm i'm very excited about that um and then every once in a while you know a special exhibit will go through um there was a traveling that investigated the cherry hill mine disaster a few years ago so that was really um eye-opening, a local historical event that not everybody knew about. And so a lot of community members came in for that. And then more recently, um, the the librarians and Jaina Leapart-Gatilla in particular have begun um, One Book, One College. So I think we're on the third year now. And this is uh, a wide-ranging interdisciplinary Uh, examination of all of the themes and conflicts that center around a particular book that the One Book, One College committee selects. Yeah, this past year, they did uh, Death and Mud Lick and talked about the opioid crisis. And I, I thought that was really fascinating, too, because it like, I think at first glance, people think of it as if, like, oh, this is just like a community book club. But it was really like, even more so than that, like a community meeting where you had like experts coming in, you guys got to talk to the author of the book. So like, it really felt like it was like a community meeting information session alongside with just being like a, you know, discussion of the chapter by chapter happenings of the book. Yeah, it was really uh, an experience for me as a, a viewer or participant. You know, with COVID, we had to do so many meetings via Zoom the last couple of years. So a lot of times I was watching from my kitchen counter or I had my phone playing the meeting as I was driving somewhere. But I I have to admit, I was kind of ignorant about the extent of the problem in the Illinois Valley area. Um, but I certainly had my eyes open to it and hearing from people who are experts in dealing with uh, opioid addiction and all of the social 
uh, problems that it brings with it was was fascinating and heartwarming too. Um, I didn't know a whole lot about Perfectly Flawed, the the yeah, community organization. They do harm reduction, lots sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. So I was glad to learn more about that group, and um, even hearing you know a couple of heartbreaking stories shared by people at the college who who opened up and and let us hear about their own family's experiences with addiction. So, um, gosh, it was a valuable event. And I'm looking forward to continuing this, you know. Right, and the type of like engagement and like community testimony and conversation that has been really hard to come by over the course of the pandemic, as I, you know, invite you to your probably 30,000 Zoom call that you've been in since March of 2020, I feel like I almost need to apologize (laughs) for that. But how, how have you found it as an educator, did you have to do much Zoom teaching? Using the technology? Um, yeah, I, I mean, it was a steep learning curve, right? So right. When, when lockdown happened, I don't think any of us were fully prepared. Um, and then there was also uh, the college experienced a technology uh, breach at the same time. So it was really, it was kind of a nightmare for everybody involved. And I know the technology people were scrambling behind the scenes, but but we were doing our best, um, teachers and support staff, to just locate students, you know, um, without being able to access the college's uh, website. So we were going through paper files, and some of us had printed rosters, and some of us didn't, and um, you know, students hadn't updated their contact information necessarily, so. Gosh, it was. That sounds like a mess. It was a mess. That's an understatement. Yeah. But uh, very, very quickly, I think people adapted and we had some professional development um, opportunities, workshops where we were all kind of learning how to use it on weekends and evenings so that we could keep the classes going. Um, I won't I won't say I'm perfect. Certainly I'm and I'm still learning how to use technology. Some of my colleagues are a lot further along than I am. Um, but I have had students now, I've, so I've been teaching with Zoom and, and online for a couple of years. And um, I've had students from distances, again, the technology makes it possible for people to take the classes when they wouldn't necessarily be able to take the classes otherwise. So that's great. You know, that's, that's a, a benefit of it. Do I prefer this over people being in the same classroom face to face? I don't I don't think I'd say that. Yeah, I don't know if there's anyone that prefers that really. Yeah. There's a certain energy and power that comes from people sitting in a room together, right? Yeah, especially for your classes. You know, you teach English, speech, things like that primarily. And I've talked to so many educators over the last couple of years that, you know, a crucial part of those classes are the conversations and kind of the like comfort and vulnerability that you have to, you know, establish in your class to talk about, you know, books or your writing and things like that. And that's something that can be very difficult to curate in a Zoom environment. Have you found you've been able to like crack the code every once in a while and and get it to where it actually does feel like students are having a conversation and being vulnerable and sharing things even in a Zoom environment? Or is that something that you kind of had to get back in person to, to get that feel and capture that energy? I 
I know colleagues of mine have have been successful with it. I have to say that for me, the the Zoom classes have never really reached that that perfect moment of everybody sort of opening up and participating. And you're not alone, though. That's the answer that I get for most people. Um, when you think about something, when I first started learning more about teaching online, we had a little bit of a you know, back in my day moment. And, and really telecourses, um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought about as distance learning, but telecourses have been around for decades. So there was an opportunity for students, they weren't getting, you know, the full, rich experience of being with classmates in a room. But, but certainly telecourses where you know, you would literally get in your mailbox through the mail um, videos and and teaching materials that you would unpack at home. Videos like like they would send you like a CD or like a flash drive or something. Yeah, you know what what predated CDs and flash drives? Oh, I mean, like VHS, a, some VHS like tapes. VHS tapes. Whoa. Yeah. yeah. So that is really fascinating. <laughs> It feels like ancient history now. <laughs> I know, like any VHS tape feels like it's something that should be like dug up by an archaeologist now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, I do want to go back to just like the larger community college point, too, because, you know, people that listen to the show are probably where I went to a community college. I have an associate's degree from Wabanzi. And I do feel like there is, even in, you know, 2022, still some sort of like outward stigma about community colleges, people still feel as if it is some kind of like high school 2.0 lesser higher ed experience when I know that it's like absolutely not the case at all. And it's such a, an interesting place for both, like you said, like community events and, you know, not even to dive into the fact that, you know, it's how much cheaper it is. And also with teachers and adjunct professors, oftentimes are the same professors that you're going to have at a four-year private university that are also adjuncting at the community colleges. So even like level of rigor in my life, you know, personally speaking, I felt the the hardest classes that I took in college were at community college. So I think the stigma that you mentioned, and I would agree, it's it still lingers, maybe not quite as bad as it used to be, but... No, I don't think it's as um, bad as it used to be. But I think that stigma... It, comes somewhat from popular culture and you know so we'll we'll go to the theaters and you'll see movies about college and and what college is all about and um a lot of times the aspect of college that is the focus of these fictional movies is um you know greek life or the social aspect or the party aspect right and and you know people living in and and gosh, it's ripe for conflict and drama, right? People from coming of age, right? right, right together. Yeah. Um, but but there are so many people who are involved with furthering their education who are not 18 or 19 years old and moving away from home for the first time. So, you know, there's that elitist tone to, oh, a college can only happen. Um, it, it even has the stereotype even has in my mind, it's always going to be fall and the foliage is always going to be beautiful. And people are going to be walking on a a quad between these uh, hundred year old buildings. Right. Uh, But adults, people with families, people with jobs, um, 
lifelong learning happens well beyond this discrete moment in your life when you're 18, 19, 20 years old. And, and people can reap the benefits of, of continuing education and furthering their certifications and degrees and, and experiences for their entire lives. I mean, I, I'm, I'm still taking grad classes. I'm, I enjoy learning and I think a lot of people do. And so a community college offers that even if you're never going to be in a position um, financially or personally with your, your moment in your life to move away and live with a bunch of other people, right? That's, that's a little unrealistic for, for pretty much everybody out there. You're right about the popular culture aspect of this too, right? Like the college is either portrayed as like animal house, like, you know, it's it's like wild Greek life frat house, or it's like crisp, beautiful autumn afternoon and you are like by this 200-year-old Harvard building and a quad like reading Shakespeare under a tree or something, <laughs> or like re reading it aloud for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful poetic image, but it's pretty unrealistic. One of my pet peeves is that I hear from students sometimes, and, and not just students, um, uh, community members and parents, other people who don't fully understand, um, oh, let's just get this out of the way. Let's get this class out of the way so I can get toward what I, what I really want. But anytime a person is exposed to a new experience, it's it's got value to it, right? We learn and grow with everything that we encounter. Every moment is a learning experience if you want to be really broad about it. Well, yeah, and it, it then informs the things that you're going to want to pursue in the future. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, I, you know, speaking personally from, from my own experience when I was younger, so we're talking 30 years ago, um, when I was working on on trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I'm I'm a first generation college student, so um, my view of the world was very narrow, just because I hadn't been exposed to a lot of different things. So, if I hadn't had some of those Gen Ed first two years classes, I never would have known how much I I love teaching and reading and writing and working with people and. Um, I think I was kind of heading toward more of maybe an office managerial type situation if I hadn't right. been taking uh, an intro to, to literature, intro to 20th century lit class. And I found myself always, always going to that class. I would sort of, you know, skulk around and try and eavesdrop on what the professor was saying to other students. I didn't have the nerve to talk to him myself, really. But so that made me realize, oh, I'm going to these classes and loving it, and I'm kind of skipping some of my other classes <laughs> that I that were a part of my major. So I ended up switching majors, and thank goodness, you know. But again, had I not had those first couple of years to just explore and and be exposed to something like a literature class that I hadn't experienced before. I, I would I would have been in a very different place, right? Oh, a hundred percent. I my experience is is the exact same. Again, people on the show probably know that 
when I came into college, like so many other people who are 18, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I vaguely knew the things that I excelled in, you know, that I was maybe did a little bit better in English than I did in math. But like turning that into a tangible career, I had no idea where to go. And I'm not sure what happened if I, what would have happened if I would have went directly into like an expensive four-year, you know, private college. I don't know. I probably would have felt pressure to specialize really quick. Whereas my experience at the community college, being able to have those two years to experiment more, I felt like I had the freedom to do that. And, you know, I, I took, again, I took classes like there was one semester, I think the last the last semester I was in community college, I was in both a local and state government course and a intro to Shakespeare acting course. And those seem like completely disparate topics, but now I think of my career now in radio journalism and I go, wow, I've somehow like melded those two things together. It's not an accident that those were two classes that I really enjoyed, you know? And yeah, I, I took other classes too, like geology, but you know, I, 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 those didn't speak to me in the same way. I know what a point bar and a cut bank is, so that's cool. But those other ones really spoke to me in a way that I feel like really did actually like inform my career path. Yeah, I think the value of any class um, is oftentimes realized just way many years beyond when it ends. So yeah, definitely. I'm sure there are over the years like moments that you can think back to where a student was working through something and, and trying to, you know, find themselves as, as a writer in like an early composition course. And there was like a really kind of a light bulb moment. Are there any of those that stand out to you now looking back as, you know, over a decade in the classroom of, of moments that you're like, oh man, this is working. We're doing the thing. Yeah. Um, hmm. So three things jump to mind. One of the most, and I don't know if it, I don't know if it's a moment that I, should be embarrassed about or regret or or it, it wasn't the best teaching that I've ever done because I had a student who was taking the intro to composition class very very talented writer he already had a lot of strengths as a writer really clear writing voice really vivid descriptions right and for whatever reason the class just wasn't grabbing him he he was um upset about coming. He wasn't, uh, he was skipping a lot. So, you know, we had this conversation and I, I said something, now you have to remember this was like 15 years ago. So to the best of my recollection, I said something along the lines of, well, you know, um, taking a class, it, maybe that's not the right thing for you right now. Maybe you're not feeling that you're ready for it or that you want to do it. He withdrew. Uh, went elsewhere. Six years later, approximately, he's back in my class and come to find out that was like my comment was the last straw. And so he withdrew from classes, went to Texas and worked on oil rigs for four years and made a lot of money, lost a lot of money, fell into some sketchy situations from what I could gather and decided after those years that okay now i've experienced that and i i want to go back and i want to try again so he was he was back taking classes doing wonderfully excelling you know and really it was just the point in his life where he was ready for it in my opinion um he wasn't ready for it 
previously. He needed those six years of, I, I have to imagine it would be hard physical labor, um, climbing up oil rigs in, in Texas somewhere. Um, but I thought that was fascinating. It was, it was, I wasn't able to help him in the moment, but I think his own lived experience brought him back to learning, right? That's interesting that that like six years of experiencing the world and gaining a new perspective and that even after all that, he was like, I think I need to come back and do this. Like, that's really fascinating that he came back at all. Yeah, yeah. I One of, one of the most interesting people I've ever come across uh, in, in the classroom or out. Um, experience number two. Um, this was somebody who, again, you know, would be would be identified as a non-traditional student. So somebody in their uh, mid to late 20s who had dropped out of high school, worked minimum wage jobs for a few years, just getting by, and then got a GED, enrolled in college classes, and was loving the experience, And but but had absolutely no confidence in her writing. So um, I don't know what high school had been like, but what she heard in high school was, you can't do it, you're not capable. And on the contrary, she had just, again, a really unique, interesting, clear writing voice. So what she put on the page was always fun to read. It might not be 100% grammatically correct all the time or have the commas where I would put them, but, um, but a really beautiful writer. She needed to hear it over and over and over again, though. I don't. I still think after she graduated and got her diploma, I still think she didn't believe me 100% um, that her writing was as beautiful as it was. Those were great. I think it's really an experience. It probably isn't an experience, or, or maybe it is, that you have often as an educator where someone is excelling, is, is doing really well, and is writing in a creative and personal way, and you try to tell them that, and they don't 100% believe you. Like, I don't know what you do in that situation. <laughs> I just say it over and over again, I guess. Right. I mean, and that affirmation really does, you know, help. I would, I would, uh, you, you hope, right? Like, it's especially from an adult that's not in your family. Usually that's, that's who you need to hear it from sometimes. Yeah. Writing is so personal. I mean, um, you know, you're putting your thoughts, the things that are inside your head out there for people to see. Um, so I understand people being bashful about it or being worried about, you know, oh, I'm going to make a mistake or or I'm going to be judged by this. Yeah. I mean, I even find as someone that like technically writes professionally in my job, obviously I'm not writing intensely personal things a lot. I'm, I'm writing stories about other people and events and politics, all this type of stuff. But I still feel like I absolutely need to write it in the way that that only I can, right? Which is hard when you're within the structure of something like a, you know, a newscast or a news story because there is a structure to these things and there is kind of a format for it. So it's kind of a been a, a challenge. I don't want to quite say it's been a struggle or anything, but it's been an interesting challenge to try to like, once you feel comfortable within that format, within that structure to be like, okay, maybe I can start playing with it in a way that is more unique to me. And sometimes I feel like, am I am I challenging myself and doing this in a way that's interesting or am I just making it worse? <laughs> you know, <laughs> am I challenging it for the sake of challenging it or am I actually contributing something new and interesting? But it's been a fun push and pull. 
if your audience can understand what you're you're trying to communicate, then success, right? Um, and and of course, everybody, you have to know the rules before you can just go crazy and break all of them. But um, but gosh, it, you know, so many students in my classes anyway have such anxiety about where does the period go? Where does the comma go? Oh yeah, commas are an intensely personal decision. <laughs> and then when I introduce them to the semicolon and their minds just oh, explode, right? Listen, in journalism, we hold dear the M dash. <laughs> I use the M dash incorrectly probably five times a day. <laughs> oh, well, you'll, you'll appreciate this then. I So, you know, texting is something that I'm not a native uh, texter, right? Um, I, my, my, uh, maturing into young adulthood was way before cell phones. Right. Back in the, uh, in the, uh, you know, the VHS archeology span days. So. <laughs> but my kids have, have, uh, made me a little bit more comfortable with it, but I still use dashes and, and I'm a, a big user of, um, ellipses, you know, dot, dot, dot. And I was told that it comes across as hostile. <laughs> I Well, listen, there's nothing more hostile in text messages than a period. So three periods, you can imagine. That's just a war <laughs> of escalation for them. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love that. It's, it tickles me so much, but I, I don't understand it. It's I think it's funny, but I don't get it. <laughs> I, yeah, no, it, it's so weird, though, the way, like, I feel like I have also been indoctrinated by the, like, text lingo, where, like, yeah, if you see a period, somehow that's harsh. And to me, the ellipses is just like, you know, you've lost interest, you, you know, you're trailing off. And I know, I, I know how ellipses work. I know that's not what that means. But like some, I've, I think I've, I am now like literate in the, the way that people perceive text messages. It's so weird. Yeah, you know, again, one of the things that I think is unique about this show is that the educators that we have on are people that, you know, our, our audience asks for people that are, are nominated in some way. And so I often find that the teachers that I talk to have had educators in their life that they would want to do the same for people that stuck, stuck out to them in some way, people that inspired them, people that really helped them or made a big impact on them. I was curious for you thinking back in your education experience, both as a student, as a even as a teacher, I guess, any particular people that stick out that you feel like were really supportive or just made a big impact on you? Yeah, thank you for asking that. I mean, I think everybody has teachers that uh, have made a huge impact on them. And Absolutely, I, yes, our, our, the three years of this show, living proof. <laughs> and, and good or bad. I mean, yeah. I know that I had a... I had a elementary school teacher who, and you know, I, I was seven, so I don't know what was going on with her, but, <laughs> um, but she, she was definitely uh, a, an authoritarian figure and my memory, I couldn't even tell you her name, but I can see her speaking to other students and it was, it was more of an authoritarian, harsh way of, of running a classroom, you know, yeah, and um, it's scary more than anything else. So I, I really hope that that experience of seeing the way somebody talked that wasn't fun to watch, I hope I've stayed away from that sort of tone. 
Right. Well, I'm sure as a parent, too, you appreciate that when you're dealing with those little kids, too, that a huge part of the responsibility there is that you have no idea what you're going to do or say that is going to stick with them for the rest of their life, you know, and things like that. I think we all have memories like that, whether it be a teacher, a parent, or somebody. My first grade class, I I don't think that this woman was particularly even mean or authoritarian. I I don't really even remember that well. But I do remember that at one point, I think that it was like after gym class or something, that I had like had my shoes like kind of halfway off under the desk. And that pissed her off so much that I think in my memory, she like picks up my shoes and like tosses them across the room or something like that. That must have been a bad day for her. But I'm like, I've never forgot that. (laughs) Yeah, and it is those moments. And that's, that's one of the exciting things about teaching too, is just people interacting with each other, right? And you try yeah. to make it as positive an, of an experience as possible. <laughs> uh, I, I hope she didn't throw your shoes across the room. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> I hope not either. Who's to say it was 20 years ago now? But... <laughs> okay, uh, but so wait, good teachers. Better, better teachers. Yes. Um, teachers that have been phenomenal uh, in my experience. I'm Dave and Donna Barnes from Oswego when I was uh, in high school. They are amazing educators, kind, funny, intelligent, um, and they've maintained this network of students that, you know, I don't know how many decades uh, worth of people they've stayed in touch with now, but purposefully maintained these contacts and invite students um, to be a part of their lives still. Um, they have an annual frolic uh, up in the North Woods somewhere. An um, annual that, that frolic? Every... That sounds yeah. <laughs> magical. <laughs> well, much like the, the great educators they are, it's very organized. So, okay, um, yeah. you know, there's there's food and fun and uh, um, aerobics and all sorts of things. But um, so Dave and Donna Barnes just did, they influenced my life path uh, immensely. Um, uh, uh, Dr. Um, K. Aaron Smith at ISU is a brilliant, instructor, linguist. Um, I enjoyed his class so much. I, I wish I could take more, but I don't think I, I'm trying to get through a program and I don't think I can take any more of his classes, but yeah. I highly recommend um, the linguistics class for anybody who needs one. Um, I've had other teachers um, over the years. Uh, Milo Kaufman uh, was one of those early literature teachers and I think he wrote poetry as well. So just a beautiful grasp of the language. Um, gosh, there's, I know there, I know I'm forgetting dozens of people, but those are yeah. the ones that, that come to mind, you know, first. That's outstanding. I will, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time, I, but I want to end off with a couple more like rapid fire questions, right? We'll, we'll just, we'll get through these ones quickly and I'll get you on your way. You talk about writing poetry. I'm curious, as someone that teaches writing courses, teaches composition, if you find yourself, do you do, you do much writing outside of the classroom? And if so, what do you enjoy doing? Do you enjoy doing essays? Do you enjoy writing fiction, nonfiction, poetry? What do you like? Um, I if I if I do get a chance to write, and it doesn't happen very often, yeah. I, I prefer essays over poetry. I'm not a poet. I love reading it and hearing it, but 
Um, it's not something that I'm talented at or enjoy. Um, yeah. It's like a workout, right? It's like, oh, for sure. Yeah. So probably um, essays more than anything else. Very cool. Okay. So another thing, we talked a little bit about, you know, Greek life, fraternities, that type of thing. You are part of some somewhat Greek life thing. You are part of an honor society that you help out with, which is Sigma Kappa, Sigma Kappa Delta. Am I, do I got those right in the right order? You do, right. But very, very different things, though. Very different things. Yes. Tell me tell me about it. I'm, I'm curious to know what the organization is like, what you guys do over there. There are honor societies, then academic honor societies that use the Greek symbols as well for identification. And Sigma Kappa Delta is meant to promote and highlight the benefits of uh, reading and writing and the lang- the study of language, um, and, and also to uh, acknowledge and, and celebrate students who have done well in those classes. So um, students have to apply to join. They have to meet the criteria of grade point average and uh, number of classes taken and um, uh, do well in those reading and writing classes, but um, but it's not just all English majors. I mean, we've talked about how community colleges are the first two years for everybody. So um, we have many members of this English Honor Society who are in other programs. They plan to do other things with their life, but, but they enjoy communicating. Um, through reading and writing. So they they are wonderful members, right? Yeah. All right. And then only a couple more rapid fire ones. I know that you're a part of your American Federation of Teachers, local 1810. I'm curious, we are kind of in the middle of a very strong pro-union moment in this country. I was curious if you can kind of feel that even within your labor unit. Does it feel like there's some like renewed energy and enthusiasm even there too? I think the longer somebody teaches, the more they come to appreciate the importance of unions and of working together to accomplish things. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think there can always be more involvement. So I'm thrilled to hear that, you know, you feel that there's a power and energy behind the labor movement that you haven't sensed for the past few years. It just needs to keep going. Right. It, right. it needs to people need to fully understand that um, working together in order to accomplish goals gets you so much further um, than than not. So, yeah. All right. And then the last question is one that we like to end all of my interviews on, which is we'll phrase it in two ways. One, what's something about teaching specifically the liberal arts? What's something about the liberal arts? that you wish more people knew or think is more important than people might realize? Um, Well, for me, the liberal arts um, exemplify the human experience. So I wish people understood that you're only broadening your experience um, by taking classes that fall under that liberal arts umbrella rather than rather than narrowing your focus to the point that you're not getting everything you could from an education. I, the, the true liberal arts, you're, you're getting a taste of everything that makes, um, our, our lives important. Right. And it might not seem like something that will matter to you right in the moment, but 
you never know when it will come up again as a part, an important part of your life. So. All right. And then what is something about teaching that you wish more people knew? Just how, uh, just how hard it is, how exhausting <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, every teacher I've ever met, good, good or not so good, people who are excelling or who are maybe not the best teachers in the world, but but all of them have the goal of helping their students to learn, of um, making the classroom a rewarding place. Um, so I, I don't know, in these days in particular, I think there's a lot of um, suspicion and anger directed toward teachers that I just don't understand. Um, when I've met so many wonderful educators over the years who care about their students, who care about their students' families and their communities, and they're trying to make the world a better place for everybody, right? And then to have um, the sort of, well, like I said, suspicion directed toward them is is really, it's regrettable. Yeah. I think that's, that's a place that we can end that. Dolores, again, thank you so much for for taking some time out of your day to chat with us. I hope you had a good time. I did. I always enjoy talking to you. Thanks for listening to Teacher's Lounge. That's all we've got for you. As always, feel free to nominate a teacher in your life to be on our show. It's how we get great guests like Dolores. Send them our way to teacherslounge at niu.edu. And wherever you're hearing this podcast, please do subscribe or leave us a rating, share it, whatever you can do. It does help us get even more perspectives, even more voices on this show. You can also subscribe to the Teacher's Lounge newsletter if you want to stay up to date with everything having to do with the show. You can find a link to do that on this episode's webpage over at wnij.org. A big hearty thank you to the Northern Illinois band Kind Ofs. For the music you hear every episode on our show, a big thank you to Spencer Tritt for making our Teacher's Lounge logo that you're seeing right now. I've been your host, Peter Medlin, and we'll be back with more Teacher's Lounge very soon. See ya.